Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. How do you do? True Story FM feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. Sitting in the Dark is about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. 
I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It may even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerve to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we warned you. You're listening to Sitting in the Dark, the new horror podcast from True Story FM. Thank you for joining us today. I am Ray Delancey, and joining me is Kyle Olson, the handsomest man in the room. This man, this monster, <laughs> this beard. And Pete Wright, the second handsomest man in the room, only because his beard is just a tad shorter than Kyle's. I'm really excited about this, uh, Dr. Regenstein. I'm I'm very excited about this, uh, about diving into your uh, fetish monster. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, I'm excited about it too. You know, there's there's just something about cadavers that really gets my blood warm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's one thing I I just want to to say uh, before we start here. I'm extremely thrilled for this opportunity because I've always been a fan of these movies, and I feel like they get uh, an unfair bias because of their age. And I think that if we take a chance to look at what these movies bring to the table, it will broaden our horizons and give us a, a better appreciation for these. Not because they're old, but because they're good. I think it's an interesting thing to start with with this particular monster for this particular show, Sitting in mm -hmm. the Dark. You know, in our in our introductory episode, we had this conversation about, you know, the pushing boundaries on movies that that scare us and talking about horror movies. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating that we start with a monster that isn't necessarily in these early movies, isn't necessarily scary, mm -hmm. right? There, there's nothing that that's particularly horrific about them. But I still had, to your point, an outstanding experience watching these movies. The restorations that I watched were impeccable. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I just, I think they have been really cared for. So why are they so easy to lampoon? Well, their age. So, you know, I, I'm I'm excited to dig into it. I I have very little history with Frankenstein, uh, the monster, apart from the original, uh, the Shelley book, which I know Kyle is going to talk about, and mm -hmm. Young Frankenstein. And I probably <laughs> watched these when they were on, you know, cable when I was a kid, but I don't don't really have a memory of it. Uh, I got to ask you this question since you brought up young Frankenstein and this goes for both of you. Uh, how many times when you were watching these movies, did you say, Oh, that's the part from young Frankenstein. All yeah. the time. <laughs> so much. So All much. the time. Especially, especially in bride, the bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, yep. like, oh, I didn't realize how much they pulled from that uh, to bring over. I was like, Oh, yeah. Oh, what was, yeah. what it was uh, really funny to me at least my observation was like watching in some cases it felt like they didn't even take much away to make it a joke like <laughs> it was the same scene the same scene and in young frankenstein it's funny and in this movie it was ostensibly not funny i thought that was crazy oh that that's like uh in the movie son of frankenstein which comes directly after bride that's where we get the character of inspector krogh who has the wooden arm and oh. i am oh. not able to watch that movie seriously anymore because <laughs> young frankenstein made it so, such a funny bit <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> anyway we're here and we're going to be covering one of the most famed stories 
of all time, written in 1818, I think. But we're actually going to let our resident Mary Shelley historian, <laughs> Mr. Kyle Olson, tell you a little bit more about the history of the novel and of its young author. Yeah, I'd say I'm 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 only expert uh, by default uh, in the room. Basically, I I used Mary Shelley in a in a story <laughs> that I wrote, uh, uh, and so I I ended up digging into it and and really was fascinated by by her life and stuff too. So I wanted to basically talk about sort of the or, or the original creator before we sort of dig into it, all the adaptations because as the adaptations go along, they drift farther and farther from her original vision, and she in her lifetime fought for credit uh a lot of times and, and lost uh many many times too so i wanted to sort of yeah. go back and, and sort of give her her due so um none more goth than mary shelley uh <laughs> she had her life was uh consumed by death surrounded by death it was it was everywhere around her she she lost her mother before she you know at like 11 days after she was born she learned to write by uh like following the letters on her mother's gravestone uh the same Ooh. grave where she eventually would um have her first carnal relations with a man uh oh, <laughs> you, you oh. cannot get more goth than than mary shelley uh so yeah so then the, obviously the, the the famous story is that she was with her her uh mar then married lover uh <laughs> at a chateau uh with uh, a couple of other friends and then they all had a contest to see like who could come up with the scariest story and so she had had this sort of thing idea there's there's different versions of like she saw in a dream of a half-formed man trying to kill her or uh possibly like she had Heard the story of actual the real Frankenstein, which is a guy who would dig up bodies and and sort of to examine them, and that you know ended up in the local town. Ended up being kind of a thing, and sort of combined all these things to have this story of um, a creator who made a man essentially and then instantly regretted it because it ended up destroying his life. This like the idea of like the creation uh, ended up uh, destroying it. It was uh, interesting to see sort of as as the story develops how much that sort of same idea keeps coming around of like regret and like like you want to conquer death you want to go beyond stuff and yet oh no i've made a terrible terrible decision and that that seems to be a recurring theme that runs through all of it but even at the time she um did not really get credit everybody assumed oh no your husband must have written this because obviously her husband was a huge writer celebrity at the time and so everybody's like oh no you just it's like you just you just had little some ideas and he's the one that actually wrote it so much so that even in the title sequence of Frankenstein, she is not credited as Mary Shelley. She is credited as Mrs. Percy Miss Shelley. Like not even her, none of her name insult. is actually on the screen. Like no, uh, none of it. I was like, oh, this is exactly why I wanted to make this point. Like this, the, 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 even at eighteen, she came up with this idea. Like this, and and obviously it was published. I think uh, when she was twenty-one, uh, and then her whole life, people were just like, oh. You can oh you came up with sure you came up with that. Just men have been classy throughout history, right? <laughs> Deserves her due, and luckily in Bride of Frankenstein, she is properly credited and also and then appears on screen. So like, you know, justice had been had been paid at least a, a little bit uh, along that way. But uh, and so as we go along, we're going to talk about different stuff too. I just want to make sure that people remember this is Mary Shelley's story. This is her creation, uh, and everything out there comes from her. 
she was a, a libertine. She lived a very unconventional life and, and romances and stuff outside the norms of society. People, you know, clutching their pearls uh, along all of a lot of her decisions and things, too, and was the daughter of a feminist and continued feminist movement. She was like very much ahead of her time and just like had uh, just an unfortunate life and an unfortunate timing. But uh, her legacy lives on. Isn't it interesting, too, that so many of the of the the sort of tropes that come out of Frankenstein that keep evolving come from her and are about men destroying their lives? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Power move, Mary That's Shelley. Right. Power right. move. <laughs> I think we all basically know the story of Frankenstein. So let's go ahead and uh, talk about whenever they first started doing film adaptations. I had never seen the first, it was the 1910 right. version of Frankenstein. I'd never seen it. And I was fascinated by the fact that they cooked up the monster in a vat. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. That is pretty uh, great. Know, thematically, it's, that's much closer to what, because you don't, in the book, you don't really get to know what it is. Because because Victor, Frankenstein, yeah, not Henry. Right, not uh, Henry. <laughs> kept his secrets like he did not want to say exactly how this was going because he didn't want anyone else to duplicate his work so yeah that was a valid uh, i thought interpretation of it i think it's funny that whenever the film was advertised it was described as quote a liberal adaptation of the <laughs> mary shelley novel so this movie was made by thomas edison's production company which made short films in the early 20th century and whenever they were working on getting the film made they wanted to make it clear that this was not going to be a horrific film because they wanted people to be able to actually come and enjoy the experience movie making was not what it is today it was short one reelers you know they were just trying to entertain people. And so they made the elements of the story that were more horrific, more mystical and psychological for this film adaptation. As a matter of fact, they went so far as to print in their, in their magazine, uh, in making the film, the Edison company has carefully tried to eliminate all actual repulsive situations and to concentrate its endeavors upon the mystic and psychological problems that are to be found in this weird tale. Whenever, therefore, the film differs from the original story, it is purely with the idea of elimination of what would be repulsive to a movie picture audience. In this film, we have a very altered version of the Frankenstein story. So we have uh, a young doctor, Dr. Frankenstein, portrayed here as a college-aged guy obsessed with studies, and he discovers, quote-unquote, the mystery of life and death. And he appears to specialize in chemistry and or alchemy. And the creation process is really interesting in this movie because like they said they weren't going with the horrific elements like stitching together bits of cadavers and stuff like that instead what they did is everything is made from potions and things like that and so you see all these beakers and test tubes and this big cauldron and he's more of an alchemist really than all of the 
scientific electrical gadgets that we're used to in our culture. And it, it, it's interesting to me that they go in this direction to avoid the more horrific elements of the story because uh, America in particular was such a religious uh, country in this time that it seems to me to take the, the story in this direction makes Frankenstein himself an even worse blasphemer because where before Frankenstein was assembling bodies to be like God, it's almost like this iteration uh, seeks not just to be equal with God, but to improve upon him, uh, which, which to me gives him, uh, you know, more hubris. It gives him more of an ego. I'm going to improve on, on God's creation. <laughs> right? He's yeah. trying to create the perfect uh, human body is what he's doing in this film. And so the film tells us instead of a perfect human being, the evil in Frankenstein's mind creates a monster. And that, I find that to be interesting. Frankenstein, he's basically been jumping up and down with excitement during the creation process. But when he sees what he's ultimately spawned with its long deformed fingers creeping toward him, he becomes completely horrified and he flees. It's interesting to me that it's his state of mind, basically his hubris, his ego that makes his creation evil. Whenever we see the monster being formed in that cauldron, it's 1910 special effects are like non-existent the way that they did it was they made a dummy of the monster and they set it on fire and filmed it and then they showed it backwards as this charred thing being brought to life uh, you know you see it kind of coming together and becoming the monster in the end i just love that from from the from the start yeah <laughs> there's a long tradition of special effects people going i don't know let's set it on fire <laughs> <laughs> like nothing has changed nothing has changed that's right 100 years and they're still just like i don't know have we tried to set it on let's fire blow it up all right yeah make sure you record it again. backwards but blow it right. up first right, that's right. That's right. <laughs> this is gonna be awesome guys you're so <laughs> right you are so right but but it's crazy whenever you just fool around like that, you know, what you wind yeah. up coming up with and what they yeah. do wind up coming up with here looks really cool. Oh, we, we should also tell people that uh, you can you can find this on YouTube. Yes. Yes. Uh, like, easy. Things, we'll put it in the show notes. Available. It's, it's out of copyright. You don't have to worry about yeah. that. Just you can go and watch it guilt free. Yeah. It was a fascinating take on the monster because what we know as Frankenstein, right, mm -hmm. is Karloff. It, and right. uh, that is the the quintessential. It, it 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 was cemented, and it has stayed that way. Largely, it is the stereotype of Frankenstein. And um, it, but this monster, nineteen ten, was not. It was stringy haired, long finger. It looked more like a lagoon creature, right? It looked like another <laughs> monster that we're we're going to be talking about later. And uh, it, I'm sure <laughs> in one of Ray's classic classic film tours down the road. Um, that, uh, and I thought that was, it was just like magical to be, to have my concept of what Frankenstein is be challenged by 1910 visuals. That was hmm. a, a, an extraordinary sort of awareness. Now, then you bring up all the mystical stuff and the fact that this, that, that in an effort to dismiss with repulsion, 
they end up with something that is actually a weirdo love story at the end that the monster sort of vanishes with true love's kiss, kind of a, a <laughs> Disney approach. Uh, I thought that was another thing that I never in a million years would have expected from the first appearance of this monster. That is like a really weird direction to take it in. It's, it's fantastical. It's, it, it's, it's completely different from the source material. Kyle? We're, we're at this point, uh, 1910, we're about 20 years from uh, a horse running. Like the, like the first motion picture yeah. is like, oh, horse running. And now 20 years later, they're doing a full on, uh, you know, horror story. It's mm. like, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like uh, the movies were waiting. This, I'm getting very Terry Pratchett here. The, the movies were waiting for someone to like make the breakthrough. And then it just flooded and everybody just went, yes. Yes. The idea that we we've gone from like cowboy shoots gun at screen mm. and then train like train approaches station exactly and like from the eighties to the nineties <laughs> now we have we're doing full on dramatic horror stories with special yeah. effects and all that stuff. it's just amazing how fast people glommed on to a new storytelling thing and were like oh now I want to tell stories with this it's it's yeah I don't know there's something in the human condition of just you know from like. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. What are we going to do with this? Like, okay, you got the footage of a horse. What are we going to do? What if? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's my just, question the, for both the ingenuity of you guys. Of it, it just amazes me. Yeah. My question, I mean, I, I talked about what is what is scary. I mean, do we have a sense that even in their efforts to, I mean, they're making a monster movie. Sure. Like, mm -hmm. were there efforts to titillate and scare people the way horror movies are made now? And, and we just aren't scared because of time? I, I think that a big deal of it is where we are in time because what what was frightening and what was taboo to an audience then is different than what is frightening and what is taboo to us now i think we are very much more desensitized to the world than the the world of 1910 was mm -hmm. that's true yeah. at the same time i think you just said it though that uh what is frightening to us today is still challenging the uh for lack of a better word the godly order of creation life and death right and mm -hmm. that's that might be one of the reasons that this this character holds on and is something that we're talking about today because it's still scary whether it's karloff or someone else like that that's that challenges something that's not horrific not terrifying but certainly um causes that sort of internal squeamishness it can also be that because of uh, just trying to get like what where people's heads were at the time, I was thinking like, OK, so this is like 40 years after Civil War. But like I'm like, so is that a factor? And I'm like, well, no, because by 1900, everybody's like, it's the future. So I think it's interesting <laughs> that when you see this, it because at that point, science was awesome. Like everybody was on board, like electric lights. Great. Trolleys. Fantastic. Everybody was like the it's like the future's coming. Mr. Edison's mm -hmm. bringing power to the people like it's mm -hmm. it was. Like, and so when you see this Frankenstein, it's not how science is awful and has corrupted and is terrible. No, it's it's very more um, like you say, alchemistic. It's like yeah, everything it's just, is very much, you know, it's 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 sort of a weird, almost mystical rather than like using the power of electricity to to reanimate the dead. It was like, no, it's like something weird in a basement. That's yeah, it's really stuff. closer to black magic than science. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, and and the fact that it, it, it serves as an able metaphor for 
fear of technology's advancement beyond that which we can control. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, that that's it for for me. I mean, it's it, this this movie is uh, every bit as um, appropriate uh, today as Megan. Right. Like that's another Frankenstein story. <laughs> and it's amazing. And it's also you created an A.I. that you could barely control. Right. Like that's where we, we're still making these movies because we don't understand the technology that we're we're putting out into the world. So that's yeah. scary. And, and the biggest thing I think is life and death, the mystery of mm -hmm. life and death. Yeah. That is a theme that will never tire as long as humanity is in existence, I believe. Because we are always going to be born and we are always going to die and it, we're always going to wonder why. And the fact that it is the biggest mystery, it makes it such good fodder for cinema or for mm -hmm. any kind of entertainment, really. And uh, all of that being said, we, we've really touched on the creation process. Let's talk really quick about the monster himself, because like you said, Pete, he's very different than what we expect because we're so used to like the Boris Karloff iteration. Here, he basically looks like a giant potato. <laughs> it does which it can does. be scary it can yeah. be scary so yeah. many eyes he basically looks like a troll in this he's very deformed looking he has long gruesome fingers he has a tall forehead huge feet contorted face unlike the monster in the novel and the other film adaptations this one seems to be something that is spawned from evil, not something that becomes evil or acts evil after the fact. You know what I mean? It's and it, it's from, because from it's part. a reflection of the evil within Frankenstein. And yes. in the end, it's Frankenstein's love for Elizabeth that makes the monster disappear. In, in other words, I, I read it as it, it's Frankenstein putting away his his ego uh, putting away his desire to see god bested it's kind of like a tower of babel thing whenever they tried mm. to build the tower to reach god and god taught them a lesson you wondered you know how did audiences react to this at the time the newspapers and magazines saw this as the most remarkable thing ever committed to a film the premiere, which was on April 9th, 1910, saw a lot of people praising this movie. However, it also did spawn some of the first horror critics. Uh, there was one, uh, a W. Stephen Bush, who wrote in the Moving Picture World publication, I have the sincerest admiration for the Edison and Vitagraph studios, but it must be said with all due deference to these distinguished producers that such films as Frankenstein, while delightful literature to coroners, undertakers, grave diggers, and morgue keepers, fail to please the general public. Fail to please is putting it mildly. Death scenes and executions are interesting, her, his, uh, pardon me, his, interesting her, historical reading, when well described, but a portrayal of these things on a living screen may well be dispensed with. End quote. Man, I want to follow his Rotten Tomatoes profile. Yeah, so, he's, <laughs> so 
Somebody's that, flexing his uh, yeah. Now wow. I want to look this guy up on Rotten Tomatoes and see if they keep track of his review. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it is actually really interesting. Like we're we're sort of I don't know how many decades after are we on the heels of maybe forty years of the of the Grimm brothers Grimm like actively writing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, through the the mid eighteen hundreds. Like I I feel like there is there was this cultural gestalt of like here we're going to write about trolls and things that scare us and. Uh, and I can see that committing these images to film would be jarring, just as it's jarring to see some of the things that we see today on film for the first time um, until we get used to it. So I get it. I get that that the shock of change. But that's a pretty dated review. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it, you could look at this movie as the first body horror. Kind of. Yeah. Right. Just, That's actually interesting. That thought just occurred to me. But anyway, yeah. so that is, in a nutshell, uh, the 1910 Frankenstein. After this film came out, there were actually two other Frankenstein movies made between 1910 and 1931, but they are both lost. Mm. Uh, one was made in 1915, and the other one was an Italian film uh, that was made. I think in 1919. It wasn't until 1931 that we got a feature-length version of the monster of the Frankenstein story, the first talkie, and that is the one that we probably all know the best, uh, Frankenstein, 1931, directed by James Whale. It's moving. It's alive. 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 In the name of God. Now I know what it feels like to be God. 1931 is actually a pivotal year in horror history. And Universal, this was a big year for them in particular. They had just put out Dracula early in the year and it was their first horror talkie and it was a huge huge success and the studio as you can imagine wanted to follow it up fast with another horror film so the dracula movie was based off of a play by peggy webling so they went back to peggy webling and bought the rights to her play adaptation of frankenstein now Young filmmaker Robert Flory is an interesting name in horror history. He wrote the first draft of Frankenstein and initially wanted to direct it. And he really had to kind of prove himself to Universal. So after the shooting of Dracula, Flory took Bela Lugosi, Edward Van Sloan, and Dwight Fry and made a test reel for Universal to show that he had a concept, a proof of concept for Frankenstein. This uh, has never been seen before, this footage. And it's like all these horror fans are hoping someday Universal is going to find this reel of footage because everyone wants to see what Lugosi would have been like as the monster. Lugosi thought at first that he was being offered the role of the doctor. And he was actually kind of pissed whenever he found out he was going to be the the grunting, ogreish monster. Yeah. 
because you got to realize this is a guy who he was the sex symbol of his day in his country. And he comes over here and everyone thinks, oh, this is just, you know, the funny talking foreigner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so Robert Flory makes his test footage. No one knows exactly what the reaction to the footage was. Apparently, it it is said that when Carl Emley Jr., who was the uh, head of production at Universal and the founder, Carl Emley Sr.'s son, uh, when Jr. saw the test, uh, he reportedly burst out laughing while watching it. It it wasn't very good. Uh, They apparently had Lugosi made up in the grayish clay colored paint and in his words he looked like a scarecrow and he just was not happy and apparently you could tell it from the footage anyway they decided not to go with this filmmaking team of robert flory and bela lugosi those two went on to work on the film murders in the rue mort which would come out Mm -hmm. in early 32 and that is when universal wound up selecting the one and only james whale are either of you familiar with James Whale, apart from the Frankenstein films? He hasn't done too much. He's done uh, The Invisible Man, uh, Showboat, Waterloo Bridge. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, Showboat. I, I've <laughs> seen Showboat, but uh, not. I haven't, I'm not really familiar with James Whale uh, mm-hmm. until, you know, uh, looking at, at these these yeah. two films i wouldn't i wouldn't say i'm a real you know whale head and to be honest that's really what he's known for are the monster films yeah. to his chagrin yeah. <laughs> but at the time he had just had a recent success with waterloo bridge and that had made him an a-lister so lemley jr decided to use him as the director this is an interesting take on the movie because while it is the most well known it definitely is not very reliable to the source material as a matter of fact i think more people probably know this than the source material yeah oh yeah it's a really uh interesting take on the story and very different from the 1910 movie uh the big thing with this especially with the creation scene was that it needed to be big and it needed to be believable Whenever they got all of these elements together in the laboratory, James Whale wanted the viewer to think that guy could have totally just made a guy from all of this stuff Mm -hmm. going off in his laboratory. There is so much going on in this laboratory. It's one of the greatest sets ever designed. All of the machinery was built for this movie. That is one of the things I would say for both of these movies that Mm -hmm. I I was stunned by was the size of the sets and the ability that they had to move the camera from space to space unbroken was extraordinary. I felt like in terms of having a sense of place in the film, mm-hmm. I very much felt like I was I was in this place. Yeah, anything you watch this era when it's always like, you know, if you, even the 1910 one, it's basically like it's a it's a set. Like it, yeah. it very clearly and the camera is mounted and there it is. When I was watching this and going, okay, what's going to be? And they the camera slid from one yeah. side into the next room. I was like, oh, <laughs> it's crazy. It was so <laughs> was exciting. Amazing. <laughs> I was like, like, I don't know how you did that, James Whale, but uh yeah. like man, like that. Smart. Was, every time they would do that, it would be so exciting to me because I'm so used to the static shots, you know, but static establishing shot, extreme close up, 
and then back to yeah. that was a big shot. A lot of that, but yeah, every time they would sort of move it around, I would, I was, I was always super impressed. Oh, especially whenever you get those shots that look upward into the high ceilings of the laboratory yeah. set, yeah. specifically whenever he's talking to Fritz, who's up tying off the kites or whatever on the roof for the lightning to hit, and you just see the enormity of, of the space around him. It, it's kind of like. Screw you, Citizen Kane. This movie showed off <laughs> all of this wonder first. What did you guys think of the creation sequence here? Because it is quite, uh, quite the feast for the eyes. Uh, yeah, I, it's it's one of these things that, like just like like Young Frankenstein being my mainframe reference for a lot of stuff. It, it's sort of I feel like I've seen it a hundred times, even though I hadn't really ever watched it like in context and stuff too and yeah it was it was amazing now that we're talking about the difference of the sort of alchemaic version of the 1910 now to here post-world war one uh you know very different time and very much like science with a capital s and a big exclamation mark at the end like it's a it's a big thing of like having this incredibly complex scientific lab with electricity and, and jacob's ladders everywhere uh in a old gothic setting castle yeah. in, in the mill you know whatever like to have it the the juxtaposition of the two like that that, that and then and to obviously to be defying god uh, <laughs> in this in this place uh do that i thought yeah especially for the time it was great and I, it's interesting how watching the movie how much he'll like dig in on i'm like oh i want to watch the entire process of this and then other times we're just like nah we'll just jump ahead like mm -hmm. <laughs> cross the continent you know six months later or whatever just not even caring about that but like <laughs> this and i think take this and also the grave digging thing like you start uh, like over in a grave watching them die and you watch the guy in a full three-piece suit uh love that <laughs> you know Very fill classy. a grave and then like go over to them going and emptying the grave i was like why are we spending so much time on this <laughs> but it's a process it's the process yeah. it's part of like what he wants to show you know the getting your nails dirty kind of stuff. so yeah I, I i really i really enjoyed that and i think it, even that sequence still holds up yeah again the frame of reference of young frankenstein notwithstanding the fact that this movie is about a guy benjamin franklining uh, another body to life with the magic of electricity <laughs> uh, you know and i and, say and, magic and of electricity with heavy air directly yeah. benjamin franklin yes yeah uh get the kites ready and i think that's I, I think that's a that was just a fascinating process to to watch them pull this all together and to see just how well it kind of holds up once you're in the mythos of the film like i i don't doubt it i don't doubt it and part of that might be because again the the transfer and the restoration were so impeccable. It feels like I'm watching a black and white movie that was shot, you know, with an Ari Alexa. Like it, it felt really, really current. Um, and so <laughs> that, that has, is a real joke. gift. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Um, that is something that I, that I really sort of got. I understood. There's, there's one other piece that, that hits me that James Whale was openly gay through his life. And it strikes me that here he is with an affinity for making this movie about a man and his male manservant partner bringing other men back to life. Uh, and, uh, all of the challenges that come into uh, those relationships. And I wonder if that didn't have any other impact 
uh, on on his interpretation of the story. He had a difficult life and was, mm-hmm. you know, apparently lived in the end of his life uh, dealing with multiple strokes and ended up killing himself in his own pool. And that's that is a hard way to go. I wonder how much of that struggle of his grief we're seeing on on screen and in some of these films. Well, like Ray, you were talking about um, having that they they commissioned the the script and and didn't really like the first one because that thing with James Whale like read it and did not like it because yeah. it was a monster like it, like a real yeah. full on like the creature yeah. shows up and just start killing and stuff. and he wanted to do much more of a story of a lost soul exactly so like the, yeah. the, it's it's very and I was amazed at, like when I when I watching this like now in context I've seen the images from it a thousand thousand times and and parodied and and everywhere yeah. else and even Universal loves to just trot out the same like ten shots in all of their trailers for like how great of, of movies we made um but to to how instantly I am empathetic to the monster. Like from when 100%. he arrived, yeah, right, yeah. I, I just like I'm, I'm, I'm like, like I am on his side, like from the beginning of like, and that, I guess that's that's James Whale and that's Karloff. Too. I mean, yeah. like that. I'm, I'm not like, oh god, it's a horrible thing. I'm just like, oh, this poor guy. Like he didn't ask yeah. for any of this. He didn't ask for any of this. My no, God, that exactly. is exactly what I thought. And what's so funny about it is that it's even more. The Bride of Frankenstein is lampooned far more than this movie because yes. of that shot with the hair and the ah, and she's yeah. so scared, and yet. I felt so sad for everybody in that movie, particularly the monster. It is just, it oozes grief, like real legitimate sadness. It's not a joke in this movie. And Young Frankenstein has done these movies no favors because it's made (laughs) this stuff legit funny. But these movies are sad movies first. They're sad. We don't get the uh, iceberg, you know, going off into the into the sea. It's not yeah. quite that sad, but my goodness, these are sad movies. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. The other thing I, I thought from actually from Mary Shelley all the way through pretty much every adaptation is um, Frankenstein, the Doctor Frankenstein, whatever you call him, Henry or Victor, um, <laughs> is a deadbeat dad. Like yeah like basically like look what i made i made a kid like oh i have to take care of it yeah i have to feed it i have to oh no i don't want i don't want any part of this <laughs> and and it's like and you see like instantly he just like leaves it with uh with fritz and like fritz instantly, in instantly is, like tormenting him <laughs> torturing him like like <laughs> whipping like, him it's no, awful no thought of of kindness yeah. or you know it, like in the first in, in Frankenstein, I don't even think we ever see him eat. No, no, right? I think you're right. Like they just like instantly like oh I I like oh look I made a thing I I don't want to take care of it just like yeah it, it's like like a like a stray dog just like put it in the kennel and I don't even think about it. Let's make a new one. Let's see if we yeah. can make it better. Yeah, right. Yeah, and you know what, Pete, you brought up a great point about James Whale's open homosexuality because it was. One of the reasons I love this film so much is because of its portrayal of the monster. And I think the portrayal of the monster works so well because of James Whale, the director, and because of Boris Karloff. James Whale, like you said already, living as an open homosexual in the 1930s. Yeah. No joke. I, I cannot begin to fathom the amount of, of of guff this guy had to put up with because of that. The stuff that I can try to imagine is horrible enough, 
the backlash and the and the hate that he's facing because of who he is that i'm sure he he puts some of that into the portrayal of the monster now karloff is another interesting story because karloff grew up part indian his he he grew up in an english family and he grew up with that darkly complected skin that caused him to be the brunt of hate uh amongst his classmates he knows what it's like to go through being shunned and that really shows through in his portrayal of the monster so both of those guys really had something to add to how we feel for this character and being hated on sight yes and and without ever saying a word and it's a remarkable testament to these people that we can still feel that for this character almost 100 years later that's a that's a really really good point like so much of this story is also a story of privilege and the privilege to be able to walk unencumbered by you know presence in english society in this case um but the monster has no ability to walk invisibly through uh, society that that's, is a that's that a, a that is a really really good point too pete because yeah. look at look at all the chances that frankenstein is given yes like everyone yeah. just comes like oh i don't know if you should be doing this i don't like mm, i don't know and, and the big thing isn't oh let's stop these unnatural experiments it's let's get him to his wedding yeah <laughs> exactly exactly the monster like, who we've already said weird side hobby yeah. but like you know let's yeah. get you properly married first Monster didn't ask for this and will never have the ability to walk through the the, the world. popular, you know, walk through the populace without yeah. being noticed. Let's take a look just real quick at how the monster was created, because I love looking at just the creation process, not just on screen, but behind the scenes. And I didn't have all the information on the 1910 movie. But for this one, once Karloff got hired to play the monster, he immediately began working with Jack Pierce, who was the makeup artist at Universal, uh, to create the look for the monster because they really wanted this to stand out and to horrify people. And so what they ended up using a lot of uh, cotton and collodion on Karloff's forehead to build up the head and to add the scars. And then they added greenish-gray grease paint to make the appearance of death on the black and white film. They wanted him to look like he had just been dug up from the grave. And they also used some purple here and there for shadow. And then they put the stringy black wig on top of the deformed head. Uh, Now it's interesting because Jack Pierce did such a great job on this makeup design, but Karloff had some really great input too. It was his idea to take his dental bridge out to make his cheeks look more sunken which i thought was an amazing (laughs) effect especially i had no idea no idea that that was going on fascinating but you only see it in this movie because he had to wear it in the second film because the monster was required to speak so you only really get the full effect of it in Mm. in the 31 movie And so it was his idea to do that. It was also his idea to add an extra layer of wax makeup on the top eyelid to make them more droopy and dead looking, which, uh, again, really does add to the look of the monster. 
the boots mm-hmm. that this son of a gun has to wear were 13 pounds a piece. Wow. Man. His calves must have been mighty by the end. Right? And he was, I think he was 41 at the time. He was in his early 40s. I think it was 41. I don't know his exact age at the time, but he was not a young man. He, the, the suit that he wore had the shortened sleeves to make him appear bigger or as Karloff put it as a gigantic and gawky big boy who had outgrown his rompers I love the behind the scenes pictures of him like with a with a cup of co- a cup of tea probably yeah. and a cigarette just like hanging on the set like <laughs> right right oh hello have you seen that picture yeah have you guys had you seen much other Karloff stuff Yes. Uh, but I mean, he was he's he was it took 81 films before he was discovered by whale. Oh, like, yeah. To get this. He was a busy dude yeah. uh, just in the business. Like working this, character he, actor. Yeah. Working character actor. This was not his um, this. This was not this was a discovery and a breakout role, but certainly not. He was not an inexperienced uh, performer. I was watching Definitely. some of it um, um, as my, my family was sort of drifting in and out. Like they're not really interested in any of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they came in. And so my daughter, uh, my teenage daughter came in and was sort of looking at it, you know, watching some of one of the scenes with, with him in it. And she was saying, oh, if they did this today. I bet you Doug Jones would do a really good Frankenstein. And I was like, and we love Doug Jones. He's, he's fantastic. But he's like, you know, yeah. obviously for those you don't know, he's from uh, the, well, oh, shoot, the weight of water. The, no, the, the, the shape of water. Shape of water, thank the you. Shape the shape of water. water. Yeah, obviously, Oscar nominated for that. Like, you know, he, he does full suit. Um, yes. Uh, but I was, and I was thinking, but I sort of like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, obviously, he would do a great job. But I was also going, what's fantastic about this makeup in particular is how much of his actual face you get to see and he gets to use. Because yeah. a lot of times with modern uh, makeup stuff, too, they just want to cover everything. It's like even and even in the, the, the one of the worst sins of now is the CG version of it, too, where you like you watch like I'm gonna, like uh, my particular hill I will die on is watching Andy Serkis's original performance from Last Jedi and then watching the Snoke CG. And you go, what were you guys? What thinking? was that? Yeah. Andy is so amazing and evocative. And then they just literally on CG. So I think that what's great about this is that that all the effect is basically from like from eyebrows up. But like all the rest of it, you, right, yeah. you get to you get to you like the actor's instrument. You get to see his eyes, his emotion, like his mouth, like all of that is actually Karloff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's goes a long way towards us empathize with it, as opposed to a creature from the Black Lagoon or whatever, where it's a full prosthetic. Yeah, I think yeah. It, was, it was a great choice on their part, which I, I easily could have just done a full fake nose and all of this stuff. So I think they did a great job on it. Well, I, I mean, man, that Doug Jones comparison is great, too, yeah. because, man, do they trap him in the Saru face, too. Right. Like, he's such an exactly. incredible character actor on Star Trek Discovery. But, man, he's like, yeah. what could he do? Right. He's, he's a, so and like, good. And the creature of Lagoon, obviously, is the direct connection. But he's a great yeah. physical performer in that right. I can see him. I can see any creature walking and know yeah. that's Doug Jones. <laughs> yes. Even we were even watching Batman Returns and one of the clowns walked by in the background. I'm like. I think that's Doug Jones, and by God, it was <laughs> really yes. He has he has a just a, like once you once you know once you become like a, a super fan, and I've also have met him multiple times. He is as nice of a guy as you would hope he would be. Could not be a, a greater dude. But once you sort of get that gate, like every yeah. time it shows up, or whatever it says, I'd like not not to not to belittle any of his performances, but like yeah. once you know, you know, and you go, oh, <laughs> that is a gift. but yeah, but that like that like being back to to Karloff, 
I think that's yeah. they did it right in here and in the mummy, I would say, where they let him do what he's good at, which is like yeah. the, the good old fashioned silent actor face actor. Yeah. And it, it's even more incredible when you realize he has no dialogue in this film. Mm-hmm. Right. We've looked at at the monster here. We've looked at uh, the creation process a bit. Uh, one thing I do want to mention that I think is interesting to note just from here on out. Mary Shelley in her novel does not seem to give much detail as far as the creation process itself. And it's interesting with that being the case to see how each of these filmmakers, uh, per, I mean, obviously Universal does pretty much the same thing with theirs, but uh, it's interesting to see how all these filmmakers interpret the the creation process on screen because everyone does it differently. Uh, surely there's a lot of influence from this film in a lot of later iterations, but uh, I, I think that this is one of the key aspects to, take a look at and examine whenever we look at the evolution of the character of the story i mean i I think in the book all she says is i've gathered the instruments of life around me which is an interesting phrase to use and so uh, a big influence on james whale for that was metropolis which Hmm. pete you and andy Mm -hmm. have covered on the the next reel yeah which is a great movie and i'm sure once you have seen metropolis and you think about it you're you know what i totally see that going on in this film a matter of fact he even wrote it in the script you know all these machines and doodads are going off such as in metropolis and so that was just a big uh vision for him as far as the creation process went and it's also interesting to note that I think this is the only adaptation I've seen where it happens. Frankenstein has an audience during the creation process. He allows Dr. Waldman, Mm. Elizabeth, and Victor Moritz to basically become audience surrogates. They're watching him as he creates the monster. And I found that to be interesting because in most other adaptations, he's very secretive of what he's doing. But it does give us that audience surrogate relationship we see their reactions see they're playing the audience basically and Mm -hmm. it's also interesting to note that there's the line after he's created the monster henry frankenstein says by god now i know what it feels like to be god and that was a line that was cut from the initial release because it was thought to be way too blasphemous and it was only just recently put back into the film and that was one of the things that really set people off initially henry frankenstein was supposed to die at the end of this movie uh he gets thrown from the windmill at the end and he dies and you see his lifeless body and they carry him away however even as they were making this they thought you know what this might make for a good sequel (laughs) <laughs> already, already with the cinematic universe right. <laughs> franchise potential it's got franchise yeah the frank and, cu <laughs> too fast too frankenstein and, <laughs> i think that they made that in 1974 no i'm kidding but what's amazing to me is uh, i'm not gonna say i've not lost a lot of stuff from from this era that that like when the movie is over it's over like it's like get yeah. out i mean 
it's 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 amazing how they go from like this big dramatic thing throws the body over fire the people are like yeah we killed the monster yeah and they cut to like happy maids bringing a drink and a guy walks out like everything will be okay credits like credits yeah. <laughs> we're, we're done we're <laughs> endings were very Uh-oh. much more abrupt yeah. yeah like there's like and get out of the theater like <laughs> oh oh okay but and like i said they uh thought yeah there's some sequel potential here so they decided last minute to add in a scene where the body of victor hits one of the sails before it hits the ground you know softening the blow and he lives and then they also added that final scene that you just mentioned which by the way doesn't even uh include colin clive or may clark as henry or elizabeth in the background they're fuzzy and it's just two other actors and the baron uh and they're talking oh everyone like you said everyone's gonna be fine happy ending da 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 definitely uh difference from the novel can you talk a little bit about like what the reception to this is like what do you know about like how i mean i know it was a hit but like do you know have any idea like what that what that actually meant in 1931? Yeah, sure. So, whenever the movie came out, it was uh, it was a big deal. Uh, matter of fact, Carl Emley Senior thought it was going to be too frightening. Uh, it got to the point where he actually had Karloff wear a veil, but walking from set to trailer because he didn't want pregnant secretaries to accidentally miscarry. <laughs> No, he wow. did not. Oh, God. Oh, the 30s. Oh, my God. So that's why he, uh, after the test screening, he even added that prologue to the film. You know, how do you do? And Carl Emley feels that you shouldn't watch this without a word of warning. Da, 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 da. And the movie. And immediately the next thing is Carl Emley's name three times on the title card. I just, <laughs> before anybody else, it's like. Carl Emley prints a Carl Emley production of um, a Carl Emley film. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but the, the movie uh, did incredibly well. It had a budget of just over $262,000 at the time. It made in the box office $1.4 million. In 1930s dollars? Yes. Yeah. To, yeah. Like even, even so, even if it was like a dollar to get in the theaters i don't which i don't think it was i think we were still in the nickelodeon sort of era like they're still paying like two bits or whatever that's a lot of people seeing that movie by 1943 universal reported it had earned a profit of seven hundred and eight thousand eight hundred seventy one dollars i don't know what the yeah, rentals and also means. studio that... math yeah, yeah right anyway uh but uh, by 1953, the Frankenstein re-releases, because the, the movie had been re-released several times in the next two decades, all of the re-releases earned gross profit of $12 million. But as far as critically, uh, everybody thought that this was just the cat's pajamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Film Daily thought that it was... Uh, a gruesome, chill-producing, and exciting drama that was produced intelligently and lavishly with a grade of photography that is superb. And that's the only one I'm going to quote <laughs> right. So I, I want to I ask you a question that Pete asked uh, on the Discord a while back that I, I'm wondering about. All right. Was this scary? It was. Like for the people in the 30s, was it, was it just like, oh, this I'm, I'm enjoying this motion picture, which has the frights to it? Or was it actually like people like like legitimately like 
this is a scary movie. I I, I know you weren't there, but like, no, what's your I, interpretation it, of the reception from what I from what I have known of the from what I've read about the film, people thought it was uh, scary in the sense of like a superstitious scary. Mm. Okay. or or uh something like that you know um the people definitely showed up in droves and they were thrilled and titillated by it i, I would assume that they were just as scared of it as people in today's audiences are scared of michael myers or or mm-hmm. jason Voorhees. you have to understand that back at this time movies were movies and people didn't really con- really think of them as much as like a particular genre as they do today. Like people weren't like, Oh, I love all the horror movies. I'm going to go see all the horror movies. Mm-hmm. It wasn't billed as a horror movie. It was billed as a horror show sort of like it had some horrific things in it, but really it was a morality play. And the fact is you're going to a movie because it's a movie. It's a technological wonder and it's yeah. and it's awesome to be present yeah. at this time in history. It doesn't really matter what you're seeing. Right. It's the same reason we go see Avatar 2. <laughs> the experience too soon. Say <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well so that so then, you know, obviously the franchise potential has uh, been established and so 4 years later they decide to uh revisit this world and literally like from like the the very end of it like like to pick up like even just to roll back the clock a little bit like we're gonna roll back like you know half an hour or whatever uh, yeah a few minutes right. right yeah and one of the first movie sequels and it's also one of the first to actually just pick up right where i left off and uh it, but it actually took four years to make like you said the bride of frankenstein They, t- they couldn't get James Whale back right away because James Whale didn't want to be involved in something he had just done. He didn't want to remake something. And so, you know, they searched Universal shopped around for a while. Uh, eventually did come back to James Whale. They actually had a team of writers this time. There were nine different writers credited for Bride of Frankenstein, although you can definitely tell uh, Whale's mark in the writing when it happens because he, he definitely, you know, took what they had and made his own thing with it. He put his own stamp on it, brings back as many people as he can from the first movie. Colin Clive comes back as Henry. Uh, they couldn't get May Clark to come back as Elizabeth. So they got Valerie Hobson, who was only 17 at the time. 
I thought she was great. I thought she was actually much more dynamic than yeah. uh, in the in that part than that, in the first movie. And, you know, that's just one of those situations where May Clark, who played Elizabeth in the first film, mm-hmm. was a friend of James Whale, which is why she was cast. And Valerie Hobson yeah. was a contract player. It comes a Katie Holmes situation from. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Batman Begins yeah. to Dark Knight. Then we have the new character introduced of Dr. Pretorius, which is a very interesting character who yeah, is actually was amazing <laughs> how has he not been reprised in like every other thing everything right like, oh boy like <laughs> the game has changed i am all in on dr pretorius yeah i i would like to think it's because no one could possibly play this part the way ernest thesiger plays him because ernest thesiger is one of those actors who just oozes personality and whenever he does he dominates a part man and he completely dominates this part in every scene that he's in he takes complete control of but what's interesting is that the part was written and conceived for claude rains oh oh that would have been he i think that that would have been been really interesting honestly yeah um it's not known why Reigns didn't ultimately play the part, but when he didn't, uh, it went to Ernest Thesiger, who was uh, a friend and colleague of James Whale, who had also worked with him and Boris Karloff in The Old Dark House, which is an amazing movie, by the way. Um, the Now, this is interesting. The Baron, Henry's father, uh, story-wise, is supposed to have died near the beginning of the film, but they cut all of that stuff out. There are deleted scenes of a funeral for him and he's just kind of not there. Um, But I want to just really talk about the monster because here is where the monster really shines. Yes. Where we definitely got a great performance from Karloff in the first movie. The second one is arguably where Karloff just becomes a powerhouse. Um, And Jack Pierce really outdid himself, too, because he took the makeup that he had created for the first film. And instead of just having one makeup design, he had several makeup designs for this one to show the various stages of decay and distress that the monster goes through during the film. Because at the very beginning, the monster's crawling out of the windmill fire. The building has just been on fire. There's uh, watching this is like, you know, obviously the difference in time and, and style and stuff, too. But in Brian Frankenstein, especially, there are so many things where I'm like, why did you make this choice? Like <laughs> in that particular scene, it's it's a great thing of like, let's roll back the clock and see what really happened. And like the the like, I have to make sure he's dead. And so the guy, you know, the, the father goes and it, and it goes to, and they he falls in and the monster is still alive and still there and goes after him. And they like big action. thing. He's like throttling the guy cut to a shot of an owl <laughs> and cut back to the action and the monster's climbing out. I was like, what, yeah, it, what's, was that an owl? Like, why is there? Look, who else is here? It's yeah. friendly owl. <laughs> like, I'm like, was, is there an owl in underneath the, the, the burned down mill? Like in this cave, is there an owl in this cave? And then like, and then he climbs up and, it, and, the, and they go, it's in here. Like, uh, like then like the mother's there, like he grabs the arm and like, ah, oh, the monster's back. Yeah. Cut to another shot of the owl again. Like, why? Why? <laughs> why is the owl here? Why? And then the you got to get your coverage, man. You got to get your coverage. Like, what? what? James? Why? Why the owl? 
That was funny. It's just it, 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 it's a, it was it's one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if this is like a part of the cinematic language. I just don't understand. But every once in a while, he would do that. I don't know, if, and that might have been editing choice. That might have been like a directing thing. They're just like, oh, we can't show this horrific violence. So owl, owl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never really even thought about that before. But you're right. That really is a very strange choice for yeah. a cutaway yeah uh, there's a couple of times where that happened. i mean like when when the later on when the 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 shepherdess or whatever they just cut to a lamb like okay yeah. well fine the lamb is there like you know sure, yeah. I, I just want to i just when i make a movie i'm just gonna cut, have owls just, <laughs> just that could be your thing owl, cut to the owl yeah cut to the owl yeah you it's know, your trademark quick one thing that i just realized we didn't mention is uh little maria from the first film that was horrific yeah Especially, it's uh, like, little Maria is a girl down by the water. And, a little bit um, comedic in the way they yeah. do it. And then yeah. cut to the shot of the father carrying yes. the body through. I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It that feels works. like it it feels like I mean it, it's one of those that's so emotionally resonant that yeah. you lose track of the fact that there's a lot of circumstantial stuff going on here. Like, did he see the monster throw the girl into the thing to feed right. the ducks? Like I it just it felt like we we you know don't do that movie as like a movie by minute podcast because right. you're going to spend a lot of time dwelling on some of these things and uh and and that there's very little value in that because the truth is it is a deep emotional low this segment and this is what gives us the you know torches and pitchforks yeah. mentality and that that's the what's interesting is that scene is another example of universal cutting something only to really make it worse uh they didn't want to show the monster killing the girl so the scene of him actually throwing her into the water was cut out of initial releases and so you just get the idea that he killed her by the water and makes it much more fiendish than it mm -hmm. actually was because the context that the cut gave was that he maliciously acted towards this girl. Yeah. But then we see he's just trying to continue playing the game of throwing the the flowers in and making boats. And he throws her in and she doesn't float. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's just like, what the, he, he's just doesn't know what to do. And that is the character that I love. And this is the character that we get more of in this film. Uh, who, who saw the Jesus imagery? <laughs> <laughs> not exactly subtle <laughs> james whale had so much more creative freedom on bride and this was one of the examples uh of how he used it was he is a huge fan of irony and he loved the fact that uh where christ was uh died and saved everyone for their sins and then rose again here the monster was has risen from the grave and then he's being killed by everybody he thought that was a good bit of irony well and also like when he's in with the with the beggar which will the, the blind man which we'll talk about um what is he what is he given he's given bread and he's given wine by yes. a priest and like, not <laughs> not a not a coincidence and well, you know what let's just jump into that because yeah. That's the next real big part of the story is the monster's story arc with this old man who he, this old blind man that he finds in the woods. And we all know how funny that part was in young Frankenstein. And, yes. but this part luckily retains its heart uh, in bride, regardless of the funniness that we know from Mel Brooks. 
Ah! Who is it? You're welcome, my friend, whoever you are. Uh, 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 uh. Who are you? I think you're a stranger to me. I cannot see you. I cannot see anything. You must please excuse me, but I'm blind. Come in, my poor friend. No one will hurt you here. If you're in trouble, perhaps I can help you. But you need not tell me about it if you don't want to. What's the matter? Karloff really outdoes himself here. And he was worried that the monster's ability to speak would take away from the the charm of the character, but it doesn't. And what he does here is gives us a character who, like you guys said, we're just wondering why all this bad stuff is happening to this guy that didn't even ask for it. And finally, He's getting some kindness. He's getting some love, attention, some happiness. One of my very favorite shots is whenever they're sitting there smoking and the old man is just playing his violin and they're sitting there and the monster is just tapping his feet and smiling. And it's just such a happy moment. One of the very few in the movie and it doesn't last long. Some other people come along and they see the monster with the old man and they mistake the situation and they wind up burning down the old man's home and taking him away. And the monster's alone again, losing the Mm -hmm. one and only friend he ever had. Well, that's right on Uh, the, the entire uh, fellowship of outcasts Mm -hmm. is, uh, is right here. I mean, and this is the, this is a story we've seen played out, you know, uh, from here to toy story, right? It's the, this is the, um, these are the, the guys who are different and they have, they are on the verge of finding affinity of, of creating a family of choice. Uh, they don't need any more from each other than what they have. And the horror in this sequence is that it is disrupted by the mass. And that is like, uh, this is the ultimate, as Kyle says, yuck of one's yum and uh and uh, it's it's heartbreaking it is just a, a heartbreaking sequence because of it i say it is it is difficult to think of like when i was when i first started i'm like i'm like oh no this i know exactly what this scene is because i know that scene in, in you know frankenstein so well but it having it in the context of this look what happens when the monster is shown kindness yeah, that is what makes this mm. movie is that like that, like the first person who actually takes a minute to like not run and scream and fear and everything to like, like sit down, give him food, give him water, a, 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 a healthy smoke, <laughs> right. uh, show music. And like from like that, the monster is like from just that afternoon is never the same again. Because from that encounter, he then is speaking, he is reasoning, he is like, he is uh, communicating with the world because of that. And like, that like goes along with your, your found family, your thing of outcast. Like, look what happens when you give sympathy and kindness to someone who has never seen it before. They don't destroy it and, and take everything from you. They change right. and, and pass that along. Well, and look what that agency gives him in the final act of this movie. Right. Yeah. He now has agency to, you know, to to make his own life or death decisions. Yeah. 
I almost feel like from the I almost feel that Frankenstein, the first film, isn't a full movie because yeah. Bride of Frankenstein is the yeah. second half of the movie. Like it, it's it, oh, the erupt ending, notwithstanding. Like this is the the complete story. Which yeah. I, well, which and I, I had that's no idea I watched going them. in. Yeah. yeah, did you watch them? You watch them back to back like that? Yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, yeah. within within uh, like short. twelve hours of each other, essentially. Yeah, like, but I very, very I literally quick. I uh, was ill and I sat down and I watched them back to back in one sitting, and it did feel it was an abrupt ending because it felt like more of an intermission than anything else. I mean, together they're two and a half hours, as right, uh, right? like they're short movies and they're worth watching this way. Because yeah. of exactly these reasons, and, and also like because we're gonna, I know we're going to get to her, but like also false advertising in the title because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, this is Frankenstein's return. This is not Frankenstein yeah. because yeah, and we'll start sliding that way. So after yeah. this ordeal in the in the forest, the creature eventually stumbles upon who Doctor Pretorius, who is collecting materials to do what build another monster because the monster as the posters declared demands a mate which, which also really? no he doesn't <laughs> he says friend which i was like oh right. that's actually much more interesting and progressive than i thought and you know that's one thing that kind of irks me a little bit with the advertising of movies from this era is that a lot of times what they would do and they did it with these movies was they would come up with a poster or a slogan or a title and they would just go off of that and they say, okay, you writer, write something off of this. Mm -hmm. And it didn't always match. So Frankenstein's monster meets up with Dr. Pretorius. Pretorius takes him back to Henry Frankenstein. Now they're working toward making the woman. Can we just talk about, the, how weird Dr. Pretorius is, and like the scene of the little people. Yes, like, that was this amazing. This? Why Look, is this I made mini figs. What's so weird? <laughs> I made mini figs. No, before there was Funko, there was Dr. Pretorius. <laughs> that is a really interesting scene that really does a lot with the technology that they used in The Invisible Man. There's the scene where Dr. Pretorius is talking with Henry Frankenstein about his own misadventures into recreating life. And he comes out carrying this little little cabinet is what they called it and he's wearing the cabinet of dr pretorius exactly (laughs) and he's he's almost wearing like a priest's robes with the white collar and he's got this black cap on and it's all very suggestive of him being an alchemist and dabbling in black magic for what he's about to show us and so he opens up this cabinet and he pulls out these jars and Again, 1935, so you got to give them a lot of kudos for how they made this look. They have these little tiny people in these jars. And the way they shot it was similar, like I said, to The Invisible Man. They shot these people basically against a green screen. But what they used back then was black velvet. And they rotoscoped that image into a new background, which was Pretorius with the jar. And that's how we get that effect. Uh, The Invisible Man did a similar thing whenever he's unwrapping the bandages from his head and he's invisible underneath. Mm -hmm. He had black velvet underneath the bandages. 
Uh, so he has all these little, like Pete called the mini figs. And um, we see this black magic that he has. And he has, uh, he has a king, he has a queen, he has uh, um, the, the there's a priest, there's a pope, whatever it was, some vicar <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, they're dancer. also, there's, this, he made one of Satan, which is like a man in a tuxedo and a cape. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. And he's like, perfect. I think he says something like, I think this one bears a strong resemblance to me, or do I flatter myself? <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, isn't that I mean, like laying on the the religious uh, 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 symbolism a little thick. uh, It is like, once again, don't forget, we're testing God's will Mm -hmm. with life and death. Don't forget. Everybody remember? Okay. And there's even uh, they cut this one because they thought it was going too far. They had Billy Barty playing a baby, (laughs) an ugly, deformed baby that was supposed to be like, I think we should keep an eye on the growth and development of this one or something like that. Oh, and the it voice was just figment from Epcot center. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it was a really interesting sequence to show a, what they could do technologically in the last four years that was different from the first one and B how much different Pretorius is from Frankenstein because Frankenstein mm-hmm. seems much more like, a scientist that went a little too far. Pretorius is like, you didn't go far enough. Jump in the deep end. Right. And obviously in this one, um, Henry is having uh, a lot of, uh, he's a crisis, crisis of conscience. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want to do us stuff. But Pretorius is like full speed all the way. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, And so uh, uh, that scene is a very memorable part of this. Uh, was there anything else that you wanted to mention as far as Pretorius or his creations go? Uh, no, I, I really, what I really like uh, about Pretorius also is that when he finally meets the monster, he's like, Hey, want something to drink? Like <laughs> yeah. he is, he's not like, Oh, he's, he's not uh, freaked out. Like everyone else in the movie is like, ah, you know, and he, but he's also not like, Ooh, look at this strange Marvel. He's just like, Hey man, <laughs> sit down, yeah. talk to my skull. And at the time, he's having a picnic in a crib. Yeah, pulls out some bones and set up a little altar, and he's just like having a conversation with a skull. And yeah, like join us. Well, and this was after he says, "I hope she has strong bones." Yeah, right. That that line got me. The um, I, I think the thing about this it goes back to something you said earlier, Kyle, which is like, look what happens when you show the monster kindness. Mm-hmm. Like he's showing the monster kindness, but the monster is innocence, and yes. innocence does not know duplicity. Yeah, and yes. doesn't know he's being manipulated. And I think that's, I mean, that's Praetorius's entire MO is like this, that all, all but, um, you know, kneel before my mm-hmm. uh, great, my great intellect. He just needed uh, a mustache so he could twirl yeah, it. Yeah, he could twirl it, right. And so then obviously they ultimately get around to creating the bride. So in all of the the universal stuff that they they like to show, they like to do their 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 montages and and things. Um, they they always have like the same sort of clips they use, and the clips they use basically is like like the Brian Frankenstein standing there with their hair all up, and then like the turn sideways in the screen. And yeah. I was always I'm like I'm like oh this is the one I really want to see because people talk about the bride and how amazing it is, and so I'm like I guess I want to see what like what else the rest of it is. I assume that this scene happened like half an hour into the movie <laughs> not like 75 <laughs> minutes <before the> movie. <laughs> yeah where i'm like i'm yeah. like 
and then as I'm like, oh, that's it. Like that. Like that's that's yeah. all she gets to do. She's the turns out, Yeah, she turns out she's hardly a thing yeah. in the movie. She's hardly a thing. Yeah, uh, they spend more time. I mean, the owl almost has more screen time. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did like the, the that they had um, the same actress playing Mary Shelley. Mary right. Shelley, right? That was a nice touch. Yeah, that was a nice like connection between the two of them. Uh, but yeah. yeah, it was it was like I was like there was a that character has had so much impact over the last you know, hundred years almost, and yet has almost no screen time and no lines. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how, how big of an impact that because that, that still to this day. I mean, she has more screen time in Beetlejuice's rock and roll graveyard review than she does in right. this movie. Right, right. <laughs> like her legacy is all wrapped up in you stay, we belong dead. Yeah. Right? Like that's the end. Yeah. Right. And 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 to be fair. While while the film is titled Bride of Frankenstein, that that really is, I I'd argue more time than the quote unquote bride gets in in the novel. If I'm not mistaken, he starts to create the bride, but then deci- decides against it. He never finishes it. Yeah, he gets he gets uh really because uh, the monster basically is sort of manipulating him into doing this like it's it like you know sort of like do this or die essentially mm-hmm. uh and so he gets midway through and then goes i can't do this anymore and destroys the bride before she ever is brought to life but then in this mm-hmm. one we we do get a completed bride and mm-hmm. we get that moment where we think finally the the creature is going to get a break He's he's going to have a friend that will stay with him, someone like him, and all will be well. Not so much. <laughs> uh, if if those screams are any indication, not so much. Yeah. The the bride sees him, reacts to him just as any other person would, and that's just kind of like, well, guess I better just die. And and he it's really a moving part of the story because mm-hmm. he's like, you know what? You made me from dead from the dead. <laughs> I'm talking like a monster. You made me from the dead. Uh, you you made her from the dead. This has all been a disaster. You just need to destroy all of this, including me and her and go. And the monster has that great sacrifice at the end where he kills himself the bride and pretorius and allows henry and elizabeth to escape if that had been the way that universal ended their movies then i think that these movies would probably be uh, a little bit more well respected in the sense that they wouldn't be as much treated like uh, dumb novelties, but uh, you know it is what it is. Um, so all in all, what did you guys think of the Bride of Frankenstein? I thought it was a actually much stronger movie. Uh, I I think that this is like as James Whale was like I, I feel like testing stuff out and trying things. Like there's some great shots with shadows and and close up and stuff too. But in Bride of Frankenstein, he really gets to to have a much bigger palette and to try a lot more things. 
score being the biggest thing. Like I was, oh, I was amazing. Yeah. Stark Frankenstein in the movie. There's like almost no score. The score in this one, I was like, oh, I did not realize how much I missed this yeah. until now. Here it is. I mean, I think I think everything that he sort of started in Frankenstein, the ideas are much more well developed in this one, making this like a complete piece uh, with the two of them. I'm I'm actually I'm really surprised at how much I enjoyed Bride of Frankenstein, even though it does have the probably the most abrupt ending of a movie. Yeah. But it's just like <laughs> and go home. Yeah, yeah. I I I, I could I really couldn't agree more. The the ending is quite abrupt it is also that sort of sacrifice um part of that sort of extra layer the icing of grief is that Mm. the bride shows up is created is repulsed by frankenstein because she is presented as a token right she's created for frankenstein with no context of the world she's living in and it becomes like a weird sort of uh feminist horror parable right like yeah. it, it it is not a great story for her and the yeah. fact that that creation has to be eliminated so soon is is both the sort of um uh, like that it's the right thing right yeah. that happens because she is created with no future as we've seen sure. yeah. with with Karloff's portrayal of the of the thing but also great great sadness because she is given no opportunity of a future yeah. one one of the few things i i lament about the death of the dark universe uh, yeah it never happened was that they were going to make the bride of frankenstein the central character of it yeah like and they were going oh. to have a, a big like big budget like even Guillermo del toro i think was attached at one point like a big budget remake of specifically yeah. bride of frankenstein and like center the story on her and i was like that is a story that movie that needs to be made Yes. Yeah, I, I think really it really does. I'm, I'm really hoping that Del Toro does get to make that movie someday, even yeah, if it's yeah. not part of the dark universe, because that is the one man that I would trust with this. Yeah. Yeah. A guy who just lives his life by monsters, right? Like that yeah. is, is, uh, I, I thought Bride, I'm, I'm with you, Kyle. Like I thought Bride was an extraordinary partner to the original film. And uh, to your point, Ray, like my kingdom for universal monster movies that just end like this uh because the the real lampoon of bride of frankenstein that is young frankenstein my hunch is it's actually a lampoon of all the movies that come after it using the tropes of this because this was a really strong movie yeah not scary but really fun and strong honestly it it's very much uh it's very heavy on son of frankenstein references and Son of Frankenstein is really the point where Frankenstein went downhill for this franchise. Uh, just briefly, uh, there were six movies that came after Bride of Frankenstein. Son of Frankenstein was uh, the first one. And it's probably, if you were going to watch any of these, that's definitely the one to watch because it has one of Bela Lugosi's best performances ever. Some think even better than Dracula. Uh, he plays Igor. And, um, and that's our introduction to Igor, right? Yes. When uh, when in, yeah. in Bright Frankenstein, my wife walked in, and the guy was you know skulking around and you know killing the woman yeah. to get the heart and all that kind of stuff. She's like, "Oh, it's Igor." I'm like, "No, that's Hans or Fritz. <laughs> Fritz. Right. Right. Oh, Fritz. That's Fritz. Fritz. That's right. That's Fritz, Fritz with the abnormal brain, right? Right. right. Yeah. 
Son of Frankenstein is itself a decent movie, but then we yeah. get Ghost of Frankenstein, which was the first one without Karloff. Uh, Cheney played the monster. Uh, the monster actually has no story whatsoever in Son of Frankenstein. He's really only used as a device. He's only used as, as a device in all the rest of these movies, actually. Uh, yeah. Ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is just a Wolfman sequel. Uh, House of Frankenstein, uh, again, just House of Dracula. And then the last movie that featured the Frankenstein monster from Universal was 1948's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which should have been called Abbott and Costello meet Dracula because it's the last uh, time Bela Lugosi played Dracula and he's the main bad guy. But anyway, uh, it's really not worth going into those movies like we did with these ones because there's the monster doesn't do much of anything but so uh, so where does our journey take us next yeah like what what do we have to look forward to in the next the the next time we talk about frankenstein i think we're going to pick it up in 1957 whenever hammer did their version of the character with christopher lee and peter cushing and those movies there were a series of those as well but those focused on the doctor instead of the monster there's a new creation Mm -hmm. in each movie so uh, those will be interesting. And we'll also talk about other studios that made Frankenstein films as well, because unlike this era, Universal was not the only ones making Franken- Frankenstein movies. So this brings us to the end of our first look at Frankenstein of this era. And it's an interesting era. It, it starts out strong, doesn't end so strong, but it is what it is. And it gave us... Uh, the cultural icon of Frankenstein that we know today for better or for worse. And next time we get back to this character, to this story, we'll take a look at what future iterations bring forward into the past, forward into the past. I'll take it. I'll see you guys in 1957. I love the conversations that so many of our hosts have had on their shows. Steve and JJ on Trailer Rewind, Ray and Ocean on Silver Linings, even Tommy's short-lived No, No, Wait, Hear Me Out. And so many films they've discussed started out as a book, a play, or even a TV series. Well, now you can support our whole family of podcasts by using our new Originals page to buy the original source material used to inspire films covered on our shows. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these fantastic conversations. It's a wonderful way to support the show. Producing these podcasts week after week require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, 
Try using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy the book, play, video game, movie, etc. upon which the movie is based. Original material for trailer rewind movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, The Goldfinch, Aniara, or The Two Faces of January. Or Silver Linings movies like Repo Men, which was based on the repossession Mambo. Plus, by using those links to buy books, Amazon and Apple show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a fantastic way to support the show and find a great book to read. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to find your next read and get started today. (laughs) 